The reading tonight is taken from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sokoth in Judah. They pitched camp at Ephes Damim between Sokoth and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up the battle line to meet the Philistines. The Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. He was over nine feet tall. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing over 5,000 shackles. On his legs he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin hung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shackles. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day... I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Now, David was the son of an Ephratite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was old and well advanced in years. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to the war. The firstborn was Eliab, the second, Aminadab, the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistines came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Now Jesse said to his son David, Take this ephah of roasted grain and ten loaves of the bread to your brothers and hurry to the camp. Take along these ten cheeses to the commander of the unit. See how your brothers are and bring back some assurance from them. There are Saul and all the men of Israel in the valley of Elah fighting against the Philistines. Early in the morning, David left the flock with the shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed he reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines, facing each other. David left his things with a keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and greeted his brothers. As he was talking to them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from, be- from his lines and shouted his usual defiance, and David heard it. When the Israelites saw the man, they all ran from him in great fear. Now the Israelites had been saying, Do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give a great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his father's family from taxes in Israel. David asked the man standing near him, 
What will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he would defy the armies of the living God? They repeated to him what they had been saying and told him, This is what is to be done for the man who kills him. When Eliab, David's older brother, heard him speaking with the men, he burned with anger and asked, Why have you come down here? And with whom did you leave those few sheep in the desert? I know how conceited you are and how wicked your heart is. You came down only to watch the battle. Now what have I done, said David? Can't I even speak? He then turned away to someone else and brought up the same matter, and the men answered him as before. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul said, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a boy, and he has been a fighting man from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion and a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and struck it and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistines would be like one of them, because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on him and a bronze helmet on his head. David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried to walk around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these, he said to Saul, because I am not used to them. So he took them off. Then he took his staff in his hand chose five smooth stones from the stream, put them in his, the pouch of his shepherd's bag. With a sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was only a boy, ruddy and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, "'Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks?' The Philistines cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. David said to the Philistines, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. Today I will give your carcasses to the Philistine army, to the birds, sorry. Today I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those who gathered here will know that it is not by the sword or the spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching in his back, he pulled, he ta- and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. 
The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on, down onto the ground. So David triumphs over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, and he drew it from the scabbard. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that the hero was dead, they turned and ran. Then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and to the gates of Akron. The dead were strewn along the Rhine road to Gath and Akron. When the Israelites turned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered the camp. David took the Philistines' head and brought it to Jerusalem. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. As Saul watched David going out to meet the Philistine, he said to Abner, commander of the army, Abner, whose son is that young man? Abner replied, as surely as you live, O king, I don't know. The king said, find out whose son that this young man is. As soon as David returned from killing the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul, with David still holding the Philistine's head. Whose son are you, young man? Saul asked. David said, I am the son of your servant Jesse of Bethlehem. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're continuing our series in David and um, aspects of his life, or in particular, actually, David and various relationships uh, that he had and what we can learn from them. His relationship with uh, Goliath was a short-lived one, but um, nevertheless, it is significant for us, and we're going to be looking at it and thinking about it uh, this evening. So do have that uh, open in front of you, and I'm going to pray. So, Father, as we uh, gather on this uh, Pentecost Sunday, we do indeed pray for your spirit to be at work amongst us. We pray that he would uh, point us to Christ in these words, that we would hear his voice, that we'd be struck afresh by him that he would set our hearts aflame such that we make much of him. And as he wins our hearts afresh, we pray that so doing, he would win our lives afresh. And we pray these things so that he would be glorified. Amen. I was talking to uh, John Collins, who may be known uh, to some of you. He's a member of our 1115 congregation. He uh, was formerly the uh, vicar of Holy Trinity Brompton. He's long since uh, retired, but we were uh, chatting a couple of weeks ago, and we, were, we got to talking about what parts of the scriptures we happened to be reading at that time, what, what it, you know, where it was in the scriptures we were, we were meditating on. And I was saying, well, I'm, I'm about to start uh, thinking about the story of David and Goliath. And immediately he said, well, the first thing to tell them is that it's not a children's story. Uh, which I thought was very striking. But which I don't think he meant, this isn't a story you tell your children. Of course, it is a story we tell our children. I think he meant, uh, and I think he's right, that so often we turn this into a sort of moralistic children's tale, 
so easy for it, for it to become a sort of a, a fable, like a Christian version of the hare and tortoise. You know, it, it's just a story about a little one versus a big one. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. It's a plucky underdog tale, and it makes great bedtime reading for the kids. It's so often used as a sort of springboard to pep talks and self-help, five smooth stones to a better you. But I think that is to miss the point of the story and for it to be completely drained of its power. When you put this story back where it belongs, when you see it as what it is, which is a chapter in a much bigger story that runs from Genesis to Revelation, a story that is not about us in the first instance, but about God, who he is and what he has done and what he is doing to establish his kingdom you get a much bigger story, a much more significant story. It's a story that offers us real hope precisely because, as we'll see, it is Jesus and not us who takes center stage in this story. And only after we see that does it become a story about us and for us. This is the story of a God who saves and what it means to belong to him. The battle as we shall see, is God's, but the victory is ours. The battle is God's, but the victory is ours. Have a look at verse 1. It's one of the key verses in the whole story, I think. Perhaps you might find surprisingly. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Soko in Judah. It's a key verse because it sets the scene, but it only sets the scene when we remember the bigger story of the Bible. Driving, do you remember? Driving the whole story of the Bible, Genesis to Revelation, is God's promise to Abraham made back in uh, Genesis 12. His promise that he would call a people, he would put them in his promised land, and he would bless them. In short, he would reestablish his kingdom, the kingdom that was lost at the fall in Genesis 3. And at this point in the story, God has indeed called a people, Israel, and he has led them out of slavery to Egypt, and he has led them into the promised land, which is where we're at now. And that promised land includes Judah, verse 1. But now it's under threat from the Philistines, the enemies of God's people. And here's the point. By opposing Israel, the Philistines are opposing Israel's God. By opposing God's people, the Philistines are opposing God's good plans and purposes for his people and for the world. They're opposing his plans and his purposes to reestablish his kingdom. And we need to keep this in mind if we're not going to misapply this passage. The story, let's walk through it very quickly. The story opens with King Saul. Remember, he stood on the throne and his army, and they are cowering in the face of the Philistine threat. And in particular, they are cowering in the face of the champion of the Philistines, a man named Goliath. He is nine feet tall. He is full of muscle. He is famed in battle. He is an imposing figure. And uh, he is the Philistine champion, and he challenges Israel as a representative, did you notice, of the Philistine army. And he calls on the Israelites to send forward their representative for a duel. He says, we'll do it this way. We'll do it as a duel. Me as representative of the Philistines, you send forward your representative of the Israelites. And it'll be a winner takes all. Whoever wins, wins on behalf of their people. But the Israelites have no one to match him. And they know it. 
They, they, they cower and they tremble. And they send no one forward because they've got no one in his league. And into this standoff comes David, who, of course, you remember, we've just met in chapter 16. This young shepherd boy, no place in the army, he's too young, just a, just a shepherd. But he's sent by his father to his brothers. And he arrives, if you remember from chapter 16, as one who has just been anointed by Samuel with oil, by God with his spirit. And the Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. So here is David, the Messiah, sent by his father into a battle his people have no hope of winning, sent to his brothers who are helpless and frightened in the face of a foe who is far more powerful than they are and who is opposing them and God's purposes to reestablish his kingdom. But notice what David does. He doesn't do what the Israelite army does. He does not fear what they fear because he does not see what they see. All they can see is the greatness of Goliath. But David sees what? He sees the bigger picture. He sees the greatness of God. David doesn't fix his eyes on the person of Goliath. He fixes his eyes on the promises and the power and the presence of the living God. He's not awed by the greatness of Goliath. He is awed by the glory of the living God that surrounds him. He's known God's personal presence in his life. Verse 37, the Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear. He'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. He knows God's personal presence. He knows who he is as he walks before the Israelite army, the son of the living God. Saul wants to dress David as a soldier, but David says, no, I'll I'll, I'll go as a shepherd. And as a shepherd, he walks out before the Israelite army on their behalf to duel their great foe. David appears weak, so weak, verse 43, that Goliath taunts him. Am I a dog that you come to me like this? But David's trust in God is total. He knows that by taunting and opposing Israel, Goliath is taunting and opposing God. And so he says in verse 47, all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. And so David picks up the stones. He flings it. It strikes and kills Goliath. Down he falls. And with Goliath's own sword, he triumphs over him. He makes a public spectacle of Goliath by removing his head. And in the light of David's victory... The Israelite army who had been cowering are made courageous and they advance against the foe. Now friends, as we walk through that story, where does your heart and mind go? To whom does your heart and mind go when you hear the story in its context? My hope is, and I shall try to persuade you if that's not the case, that it should go immediately to the Lord Jesus. That this is another chapter in the great story of how God saves his people. A story about who God is, what he does, 
what he has done, what he, what he will do. It's not a picture of us slaying our giants. It's a picture of Christ slaying the true giant that opposes God's people on our behalf. See, Jesus is sent by his Father to his brothers and his sisters, cowering and helpless in the face of one far greater than Goliath, the spiritual Goliaths of sin and Satan and death. Jesus comes as the great shepherd, the good shepherd, weak in the eyes of the world, but strong in faith, anointed at his baptism by God's Spirit. And he does battle with sin and Satan and death, the real obstacles to the establishment of God's kingdom. Isn't it striking that uh, after David has uh, knocked uh, Goliath to the floor and killed him, he, he makes a spectacle of him by removing his head with the very sword that Goliath intended to kill David with. Couldn't help me but, but think of the cross. Sin, Satan, death, they intended to kill the Lord Jesus with the cross. That was their weapon of choice. And by that means, Christ killed them. On the cross, Christ overcomes the greatest of our foes. He defeats all that opposes God's plans and purposes to establish his kingdom. There, he defeats those spiritual giants, sin, Satan, and death, that unholy trinity that wars against us and against whom we were powerless. We needed a champion. We needed someone to go in for us as our representative to duel and to defeat them. And God provided the true king, David's greater descendant, the truly anointed one, the Messiah Jesus. Friends, when you see that, I hope you see this story becomes a story of grace. It is a story of the gospel. It is, it is not a story in the first instance about what we must do to destroy our giants. It's a story about what Christ has done to destroy all that stands opposed to God and us. It's a story that should lead us to make much of Christ. Not in the first instance a story about putting, sort of growing our own confidence, but about growing our confidence in the Savior that God has provided, the true King that God has provided. It's a story that should win our hearts afresh for Christ, set them aflame for the one that God has provided. And only then... Will its challenge to us be a gracious one? And there is a challenge to us in these verses. And that challenge, of course, is to advance in the wake of Christ's victory. Just as the Israelite army went from cowering to courage in the face of David's victory, so too we are called by Christ to advance in the wake of of his his victory. And this story has lots to tell us about how we advance and what can stop us advancing. In his actions as the Messiah slaying Goliath, David pictures Christ. But in his attitude of faith, David is an example to us. We have then in this story not just a picture of Jesus, but we have also examples of the kind of faithlessness that can stop us in our tracks and the kind of faith that can cause us to advance. And we're on to the second and third subtitles. Uh, Well done, Becky. Sorry, I haven't uh, kept you up to speed. Thank you. 
So here we are. We have an example of a faith that is overshadowed versus a faith that overcomes. See, the Israelite army, it seems to me, are a great example of how fear can overcome faith and stop us in our tracks. And it happens, it seems to me, when the things that oppose God's promises and purposes for our lives become big in our eyes, such that God becomes small in our eyes. So go back and cast your eyes over the story again. Why does David advance while the Israelite army remain rooted and afraid? It seems to me the answer is because for David, God was big and therefore Goliath was small. Whereas for the Israelite army, Goliath was big and therefore God was small. They're physically afraid because they are spiritually forgetful. When they look at Goliath in all his human glory, they lose sight of God. They lose sight of him. He's overshadowed. He's displaced. Face to face with Goliath, they forget first who God is. They forget the greatness of God. They forget his past mighty acts, all that he did when he rescued his people from Egypt, all the other miraculous things he had done for them in the past, gone. They forget his promises of the land to them, gone. They forget his power. They forget his presence, the living God that surrounds them, gone. It's as if they see Goliath and say, my God, he's nine feet tall. And suddenly God has gone from the equation. It's funny, isn't it? Who does the world revolve around for the Israelite army? Goliath. In a funny sort of way, they idolize him. He becomes the most real thing in their world. He displaces God from their thinking. They forget who God is. Similarly, the other side of the coin, really, they forget who they are. They forget that their son's the living God, chosen and precious to him with his promises for this land and therefore with his permission, his authority to advance. They don't advance as children of God, confident in their father. Rather, they cower as if they were orphans. Uh, One uh, writer uh, by the name of Paul Tripp, an American uh, who I find very helpful, uh, said this, speaking of the Israelite army, they stood there as the chosen army of the Most High God, the Lord of hosts, afraid to face the Philistine champion. It was an army suffering from a tragic case of identity amnesia. They forgot who they were. They forgot the promises they'd been given. That's right. Whereas David advances because he remembers who God is. He's the living God. He rules over this situation. His promises can't be undone by this nine-foot bit of muscle. He remembers that he he doesn't fight Goliath alone, but with God. Indeed, he says, verse 47, the battle is the Lord's. Actually, ultimately, do you see, it's God's honor that's at stake in this battle because God has promised the land to his people. The question is, can he deliver? Of course he can deliver, David thinks, to himself. He doesn't need a soldier's army because he's clad in the armor of the Lord. Paul Tripp continues, for David... It wasn't these puny little soldiers against this huge giant. It was this puny giant against Almighty God. Do 
have to say, as I was reading and thinking about this, it was a story that really resonated with me, and I wonder if it resonates with you. As I thought about it, it is so often the case, as I think about my sin and my failures and my fears and my anxieties, when I think about those moments or even those seasons when I fail to advance in the Christian life, as I, as I, as I pondered this, I was struck, isn't that so often the case that they flow from spiritual forgetfulness? It's when I forget who God is, when I forget who I am. So easy, isn't it, for the temptations we face and the struggles and the difficulties and the sins to loom so large that God is all but forgotten. He disappears. For these enemies to grow so big and powerful in my thinking that they begin to take center stage. They become all that I can see. They take up the whole horizon. And I can't look beyond them. And they have me paralyzed. And I can't look beyond them because I don't look above them. They displace God. They they cast such a shadow that it blocks out all the light of God's promises to me and his power for me and his presence with me. One of the things that I uh, battle is anxiety. And uh, I've come to realize that it surfaces or it particularly grabs me precisely when I allow the thing that is concerning me to conquer me. That is to say, when I allow it to displace everything else in my mind and just begin to dwell on it, just begin to look at it and to play with it, just to let it roll around my mind, such that my world begins to revolve around it. When I let the thing that's concerning me speak to me and speak to me alone, unchecked. If you've ever struggled with anxiety, or found yourself awake in the middle of the night, you, you may have some sense of what I'm talking about. Now, what is happening in my heart at that moment? What is happening in my heart? What is happening is that I'm allowing this thing that's concerning me to push God right out from the equation, to push him out from the center of my heart. In a funny sort of way, I'm idolizing the thing that I'm worried about. I'm making it the most significant thing in my life. I'm making it the most real thing in my life. In short, I'm forgetting who my God is. I'm forgetting who I am. In the shadow of my worries, I'm forgetting the presence and the power and the promises of the living God. Or take sin, take our struggles and temptations. How often do we find ourselves, sort of sub, even subconsciously, refusing to battle, refusing to advance on the grounds that we look at this thing in front of us and we think, my God, look at the size of it. <laughs> to begin to think in our hearts, you know, in our battles with ongoing or persistent struggles, that you know, we're powerless, that these things are, are spiritual giants, that they've just got us beat. To think, you know, I've been struggling with alcohol or lust or anger or bitterness or whatever it is. I've been struggling with this for five years. I can't change. It's Goliath to me. It's just so big. And rather than pick ourselves up and advance in a battle, we allow ourselves to be defeated before we even take a step. Friends, when we, when we feel like that, isn't it because we have forgotten who God is and who we are in him? Isn't it that because we've forgotten that we are sons and daughters of the living God with his promises and his power and his presence? 
We've forgotten his permission, well, in fact, his command to battle sin. We have his permission, his command to battle it. Therefore, we have his power and his presence in that battle. Yes, we're weak in ourselves, but when we do battle with sin, we do not battle alone. We do not battle as orphans. We battle with the promise of God to renew us in his image. That's our armor. We battle with the word and spirit of God as our sword. We battle with the presence of God who promises to never leave us nor forsake us. When we give up on the battle, we are in effect saying, this thing is more powerful than the God who is with me and for me. I was struck. I immediately thought of 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Do you remember this? I think one of the most hopeful verses in the Bible. Apostle Peter writes this, his, that is Jesus' divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him. He's given us everything we need for life and godliness. Everything he calls us to, he will give us what we need. His power, his presence to advance. And it is our knowledge of him. And here we come back to the point that is so key, that this is first and foremost a picture of Christ defeating sin and Satan and death on our behalf. It is as we gaze at our Savior, King Jesus, one greater than David, who has overcome once and for all those things that stood against us and the establishment of God's kingdom in us and the world. It is his victory that frees us to advance. We've been uh, honoring uh, the memories of those who died in the D-Day landings over the last few days, uh, 70 years ago, of course, those landings. And uh, those landings were the turning point of the war. Once the beaches were stormed and taken, the backbone of German defiance was broken. Uh, Many would argue that the Germans lost the war on D-Day. And though they carried on fighting, they were an army in retreat because they were a broken army. Good Friday was the D-Day in God's battle with sin and Satan and death. It is there that he defeated them. Now those things fight on against his people, but they fight in retreat. They are a defeated foe. One of the great lies of sin and Satan is that this particular sin that we're battling, it's inevitable. It's too powerful for you. It's who you are. You know... Satan whispers, you'll never control your tongue. Uh, You'll never control your eyes, your thoughts, your feelings, your desires. Too powerful. He makes them like Goliath to us. That's where it's so important, isn't it? This story sends us straight to the cross. Sends us straight to Christ and the one who went out and made a public spectacle of sin, Satan and death on the cross on our behalf. He has beaten them. He has overcome their power so we can advance. At the cross, he overcomes sin's power to seduce us because at the cross, we see Jesus as more glorious and more good than anything sin can offer us. At the cross, sin loses its power to keep us ashamed and guilty. Hugely powerful emotions for keeping us stuck in the Christian life, those are. But in the cross, they are overcome. Because we see Jesus bear our shame in our place. And we see him pay the penalty for our guilt. They have no more power over us. And the cross, we see sin lose its power to enslave us. Because Christ has bought my freedom. He's bought it. 
Sin and Satan and death are defeated foes. We don't need to cower in the face of them. We can have courage to advance in him. All that would paralyze me in my battle with sin is swept away when I fix my eyes on the cross. When I turn afresh to the Lord Jesus, when I receive his forgiveness, when I draw on his grace that is displayed and is offered there. Remembering the gospel gives me all the resources I need to grow. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying that we will be sinless this side of heaven. But I am saying that we can advance. I am saying that no sin is inevitable, no matter what it claims. Just as in the months following D-Day, there were some defeats for the Allies. Nevertheless, they never gave up. They kept moving. They kept battling because they knew the outcome was secure. Their advance was unstoppable. So too in the Christian life. If our eyes are fixed on the victorious Christ, our champion, our advance is unstoppable. Because when we stumble, there's pardon. And when we battle, all that opposes God's promises for us and for the world, then his promises are there for us, his power and his presence. And we can make progress against sin and Satan and death and fear. It won't be easy but it will be certain. And tonight we can do that afresh as we gather around the Lord's table. Amen.